All right, I, I love that video. I didn't even know we were going to have that. That's, that's perfect. Um, so I've got just a, an interactive moment for you for a second. We're all going to applaud the people who are able to raise their hands as I ask you these questions. So raise your hand if you are a parent and you have perfectly parented your children. You've never, you know, hurt your relationship. You've never acted selfishly uh, towards your, your children. Not a single hand. Okay, children. Now you guys are going to take me up on this offer. I know. I'd have done the same thing. I'd have raised my hand. But children, work with me. If you have been a perfect child to your parent, you've never disrespected them, you've always done things correctly, you've never hurt your relationship with your parent, you can raise your hand and we will all applaud you. Hmm, not a single hand. And what I want to point out is the fact that all of us had to keep our hands down, including myself, both as a child and a parent, um, means that this message is for all of us. <laughs> what, what God has to show us from his word this week applies to all of us, because we are all imperfect children at, at the very least. Uh, we were all, um, you know, someone's child at, at one point or another, um, but then even those of us who are parents, we have done so imperfectly. And that's where we're going to pick up in our study of Colossians, where we're in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 this week. And we're going to look at this, this important question of what it means to be a faithful, a godly child of parents. And then also what it means to be a faithful and godly parent of children. What, what does that look like? Now, I want to remind you of the flow of Colossians. Paul doesn't just out of nowhere, um, you know, tell us how to be children, how to be parents. Um, we've seen throughout Colossians who God is, who Jesus is, his, his preeminence, his supremacy, his, supremacy, his, his amazing attributes. And then we've seen what he's done for us, that, that though we had sinned against him, we had made ourselves his enemies, he died for us so that we could have forgiveness and reconciliation through his payment and through his resurrection. So we see that. But then we've also seen this new life that we have in him, that, that we've been made new. God hasn't just forgiven us and reconciled us. He's given us a new spiritual life and eternal life. This is what Jesus has done for us, and that set up the stage for, well, the new pursuit of our life is to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seek these things. Seek God first with everything in you. But then, as, as we seek Jesus, this will immediately affect our outward relationships with those around us. So we have this new desire to seek God, to please God, and we might think, okay, do I need to, um, you know, open an orphanage? Do I need to, to do, become a, a missionary to, to unreached people groups? And the answer actually is, well, maybe, but first, let's work on these closest of relationships. And God gives us these priorities, God says, seek me first, a relationship with me, then a relationship with your spouse if you're married, and then today what we'll see is our relationship uh, between parents and children. So that's, that's what we're going to have, and this will be so important, even if, you know, uh, these, these don't directly apply to us um, in our phase of life. It's just so good to see the principles of who God is and how he, he treats us and interacts with us. So let's read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says there, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
So those are some short verses, but I, but I assure you there is a lot there as we look at the, the rest of the biblical witness. So let's pray and ask God to bless this time together and, and help us to see what he has for us. Father God, we know that whatever uh, phase of life we find ourselves in, whatever family situation we find ourselves in, that you have given us these relationships for a reason. God, you've, you've put us in these relationships and you are showing us today how we can glorify you and enjoy you in those relationships. So God, would you help us to know as, as parents and as children what you'd have us do, God? We want to know your will. God, show us, transform us, change us into people who handle our relationships correctly, God. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Now, before I get into this parent-child relationship, I need to harp on something I've been saying for the past couple weeks. Our relationship with God must be our highest and first priority. Okay? Not your spouse, not your children, not your parents if you're a child. Your relationship with God must be your highest priority. Now, what that doesn't mean— what that doesn't mean is that we neglect our, our spouse or our children. But let me show you this, the, the priorities. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, uh, verse 26. This is, this is pretty um, intense. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are some interesting words. Now, that doesn't mean that you actually hate uh, them because the Bible obviously tells us to love our neighbors, love our, our wives as ourselves. You know, it tells us all these things, but the idea here is in comparison to our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus, our love for others should almost look like hate because we love Jesus so much. But this, this fact that we have Jesus and God as our, our highest priority is actually best for those around us. It is best for our parents that we have this relationship with God. It is best for our spouse. It is best for our children. Listen uh, to this, or, or just think of this logical—we talked about this last week. In Ephesians uh, 5, 18, it says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's this relationship with God where we're learning from Him, learning from His Word, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then what we even read this morning, Ephesians 6, uh, children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It, it is the setup for our relationships. It is the power for our relationships that we have that relationship with God as our first and highest priority. I even uh, saw this verse this week as I studied. Proverbs uh, 20 verse 7 says this, the righteous who walks in integrity, that's that, that relationship with God, blessed are his children after him. It will be the highest and best thing for your children not to put them first, but to put God first, then your spouse first, and then to focus on your children. It's an amazing thing God has that as we are empowered by him and following his priorities, that all those lesser priorities are actually handled better and given better attention. So, 
with those priorities in place, we can begin to look at the, these points on, on our relationships between children and parents. So let's look at number one. Number one in your notes. This is the rights of children. This is the rights of children. And uh, um, I love that this is uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday because uh, we're going to be talking about the, the rights of children, the, the, the rights that they have. And here's where I get that. Uh, you, you see that in your notes. I have uh, verse 20 and then the word children. And what that means is Paul is addressing children here. He's directly addressing children. He's not saying, hey, parents, tell your children this. He's saying, hey, children. What's interesting is the Bible does this in several places. And you see it in Proverbs and then uh, here in Ephesians and here in Colossians, that children are directly addressed. But in this time, in this culture, they didn't directly address children in this kind of setting. Children were not given this type of honor, this type of respect, generally, in their culture. So for Paul to directly address children should be something fire enough, firing off in our minds. Oh, he is showing them this, this respect and this dignity. Now, we, we saw in the video a moment ago, but I, I want to dig into this. I want to dig into this. What are the rights that children have? What, what's the biblical foundation uh, for, for all that we've been saying here? So, I'll tell you, our culture largely says that rights come when you are a productive member of society. I mean, honestly, it's a little disgusting to read um, some of the articles and stuff and arguments against the rights of children. The fact that they, they aren't productive members of society is, is generally the bar for when they have these, this worth and these rights. So if they aren't productive members of society yet, which by the way, you think of uh, we start out unproductive members of society, then we later on in life become unproductive members in society. And depending on how our lives go, we're more or less productive. So there's, there's a big problem there for who deserves rights. But anyways, how do children specifically have rights if they aren't these productive members of society yet? I'll tell you there, there are two reasons I, I, I see in the Bible is number one, these are these are God-given rights because God created them. God created them, and he endows them with rights. But not only does he create them, but he creates them in his own image. So they're God-given rights. They're not just uh, random rights. They're God-given rights because they're made by God in God's image. Okay? And so again, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so I'm, I'm so thankful to have this opportunity to speak out for those who cannot yet speak, to fight for those who cannot fight yet. And so we see here that there are several rights children have. And with Sanctity of Life Sunday, I want to tell you the first right that children have is a right to life. They have a right, a God-given right to life. This is not something that they have earned because they're so productive. It is a God-given right. I'm going to show you uh, or read you Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. These are uh, famous verses, but there's a lot here. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. It says there, You, speaking of God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is every human being, by the way. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, when as yet there was none of them. So what I want to say here is, at conception, the, the moment the, the egg is fertilized by the, the man, you have a human being being formed, being made by God in the image of God. He, he forms their inward parts. He knits them together. And he does this, again, fearfully and wonderfully every single time. No matter race, economics, no matter uh, uh, special needs or, or the highest achiever, each and every time, fearfully and wonderfully made. And then it said there at the end of these verses, he has given them a number of days. God has given them a number of days. It doesn't say there, and their parents chose how many numbers of days they would have, does it? We have no right to number our children's days. That is, the, the day until they are terminated, the day until they, they die. We have no right to do something that is only God's prerogative to do. They have this right to life. Now, I want to say this. If you have had an abortion or you've encouraged someone to have an abortion, rather than condemnation, the Bible, because of what Christ has done, because of his cleansing work, extends to you hope, help, and healing at the cross of Christ. I don't condemn you for your past mistakes. I want to urge you to make the right decisions in the future. But in Christ, there's forgiveness. There's hope. You have not committed the unforgivable sin. You have not made yourself less than human or less than lovable than being lovable by God because of this decision. There is hope. There is help. There is healing in the cross of Jesus. But children have this right to life. Paul addresses them directly, showing this respect. Now, I'll tell you, there are some more. Not just that they are, are born, but they have honor and dignity. There's a God-given right for honor and dignity to be shown to them. Let me show you this um, from James. James chapter 3. There it's talking about our need to tame the tongue, you know, to, to, to talk correctly. And it says there, <clears throat> it says there, uh, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's a warning there. Hey, these people are made in the image and likeness of God, and you're going to go cursing them with your tongue? No, because they are made in the image and likeness of God, they have a God-given right to honor and dignity and respect in the ways that we treat them, all humans. I believe there's uh, one more, um, at least one more right that children have that I see from Scripture, and that is the opportunity for success. The opportunity for success. Life, honor, dignity, and the opportunity for success. And I see this in the commands for parents to train up their children. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go because you want them to have success. Uh, Ephesians 6, 4, bring children up, uh, bring up, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We want them to have this success. And as, as Mike uh, even mentioned earlier, even orphans, maybe even especially orphans in God's economy, 
We see in Psalm 82.3, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Children have these rights. And this should drive us to act in different ways, maybe even in, in extreme ways. Uh, on, on a personal note, I, I've mentioned this some before, but Hallie and I, we have seen the rights that God endows children with, these God-given rights to life and honor and dignity and um, opportunity for success. And he has laid it on our heart, if, if it's his will, to, to seek adoption. And that's something that we're, we're figuring out. When do we do it? Do, you know, uh, where do we adopt from? How are we going to have the resources or the ability <laughs> to do it? But I'll tell you something. When God lays it on our heart, we know that he'll provide He'll provide the answers. He'll provide the wisdom. He'll provide the strength for two imperfect people uh, to do such a thing if, if it happens uh, the way we believe he's leading us so far. And God can do the same for you. I just want to encourage you in that. Of one of the greatest ways to, to show the sanctity of life is to help those who cannot help themselves. And, and raising orphans um, and, and adopting them and things like that is a wonderful way to do that. And so I, I believe we'll see it all throughout the Bible. I can't spend too much time there. But God has given children rights. The right to life. The right to honor and dignity. The opportunity for success. So, we see further in the verse. We've looked at one word so far. <laughs> we've looked at one word, but let's, let's look a little further in the verse. What else does it say about children? If Paul's addressing them directly, what's he telling them? And that's number two in your notes. The motive and responsibility of children. The motive and responsibility of children. We see that in verse 20. It says there, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, I start out with the motive because as Christians, as believers, we know that we don't just do stuff in life. We do stuff for the right reason with the right motive. So we need to know what the, the reason is for what we do. So what's the motive here for, for children to carry out their responsibility? We see that at the end of verse 20. For this pleases the Lord. Children, I'm talking to you right, right here. This is what you were created to do. To please the Lord. If you have read your Bibles and you have seen the greatness, the glory, the goodness, the faithfulness of God, you should want with everything in you to please that great God and experience Him. And if you've ever tasted His blessings, the goodness of you, to you in, in your life, you should want to please that God. This is your, your highest calling, your greatest uh, source of joy and, and purpose is to please God. But it's, it's not always so easy, I, I, I know, in my own life um, to, to please him. And, you know, we look for ways. Okay, what can I do for God again? What, what do I do? I got to do something big. But that's the next point here. We have the motive to please God, and then God gives us the responsibility that you have as children. We see that in the middle of the verse. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. So, so you want to please God? There are lots of things God might have you do, but the highest priority he has for you as children to please him is to obey your parents in everything. I remember uh, when I was a kid, um, verses like this did not make me especially happy. 
I did not necessarily want to obey my parents and everything. I didn't want to obey their rules. I think of, uh, you know, I'd get home from school, and before I could go outside and ride my bicycle or whatever, I had to get my schoolwork done. Uh, on Saturdays, I had to do a list of chores before I could go, you know, do, do whatever else. I remember uh, when I'd be going out and playing, there was a certain time I had to be back for dinner, and there's a certain time I had to be in bed, and, you know, there were certain movies I couldn't watch, and there were all these rules, and I, man, I really did not like it. It really got to me until, I probably learned these lessons too late, but um, until I learned a couple of lessons, these might help you want to obey your parents. So I'm going to give you two principles uh, for why you should obey your parents. Um, Number one, your parents have been placed in authority over you by God. Your parents have been placed over you in authority over you by God. Your parents did not choose this. Like, who should be in authority, us or the children? What do you think, honey? No, God says, you are the parents, you are in authority. Child, they are over you. They are your parents. So, I want you to think about that. If God has placed your parents in authority over you, when you disobey your parents, who, who are you really disobeying? You're really disobeying God when you disobey your parents. He has told you to obey your parents, and he has placed your parents in authority over you. You disobey God when you disobey your parents. And the second thing, the second principle that's helpful here is, God has placed your parents in authority over you for your good for your good. It is not just that God wants to make them the boss of you. It is for your good that God puts them in authority over you. Now, I realize your parents are not perfect. Mine weren't either, and I won't be a perfect parent. But in general, we understand that parents love their children and are working for their good, and that's why they direct them and guide them to live in certain ways, why they have these rules that we may not love. Now, listen, listen to these verses. Uh, Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. It says this to children. Hear your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now there's some symbolism going on there, but hear your father's mother, father's and mother's instruction. Don't, don't disregard them, for they are a graceful garland on your head and pendants for your neck. They will bless you. They will beautify you. They will give you the blessed life that you want. So it's saying, don't disregard their teaching. This is blessing in your life. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Uh, We read these this morning, but it said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Listen to this. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That's actually quoting the Ten Commandments right there. Exodus chapter 20, uh, it it gives you this. uh, Honor your father and mother um, that it may go well with you in the land, or sorry, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's in Exodus chapter 20. God has placed them in authority over you, not to rob you of joy, not to keep you from happiness, but to lead you to the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction. That is what God has done. He's not trying to rob you. Now, one more point I see in these verses. What do we obey our parents about? (laughs) What do we obey them about? We see there in the verses, children, obey your parents in everything. In everything. 
This means not just when our parents tell us to do something that we would want to do anyways, not when we uh, do something that, that would suit us well, but in everything we obey our parents. We do what they say, when they say, with the right attitude. And remember, you are doing this to please God. To disobey, to, to not do it when they say or with the wrong attitude is actually to displease God, to go against what God is telling you to do. Now, there are a couple questions that spring up from that, and so I want to address them quickly. Is there ever a situation, it says there, in everything, is there ever a situation you should not obey your parents? This is not the typical thing, but yes, there are situations. Because God is your highest priority, He is your highest authority. And so if your parents are telling you to do something that is explicitly against God's word— then you, you don't do it. You obey God rather than man. Now, that, again, that, that's unusual. I can't think of um, any time my parents told me to do something against the Bible that I can think of, so that, that shouldn't be the rule. In general, in everything, we obey them. But another question is, at what age do I stop obeying them? You know, when do we cut the cord, right? Uh, what age do I stop obeying my parents? This is a, an interesting one, and a little more tricky than the first one. I would say this. This is my general principle. Always obey your parents for as long as you can, and when you can't, show them honor. Okay? When you can't obey them, show them honor. So God, when, when, when we get married, when we move out, at some point we do have our own life. We see in Genesis, um, it says, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. She is his new uh, priority, new responsibility, not, not the parents anymore. But we still see that the child is to, to honor their father and mother. So, basically, if you live with your parents, if you're under their protection, under their provision, you obey your parents in everything, okay? Uh, no questions except for if they tell you to blatantly sin. But if you've, you've moved out, you've gotten married and stuff, I would still say obey your parents when you can, when it doesn't come between you and your spouse at all. The moment it starts to step in between you and your spouse— then you don't do it, but you still show respect. You still show honor to your father and mother uh, for, for as long as they and you are, are alive. You, you honor them. Um, I mean, I can even think in my own life, just this, this past weekend, I was asking my mom for advice, you know, or I don't even know if I asked for it, but she, she gave it, and I, I took it into account, and I believe that's a way of showing honor. I want to hear what you have to say. Anyways, so children— no matter your, your stage in life, honor your father and mother. We're all children at some level. Honor, honor them. If you're married, your, your wife your, or your husband comes first and your kids come first. But if you're under their provision and protection, obey your parents. Because by doing that, you'll be obeying and pleasing God. Plus, God's put them there for your good. So that was the, 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 the rights of children, the motive and responsibility of children to please God, obey your parents. So let's see what the Bible has to say to parents. We're, we're kind of done talking about children for a moment, but kids, listen up, because I want you to know what your parents are going to be trying to do. <laughs> I want you to know uh, what their motive is going to be and their responsibility. And that's number three, the motive and responsibility of parents. And hopefully one day you'll be uh, parents as well, and you'll have these same motives and responsibilities, children. It says there in verse 21, 
Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I want to say here, fathers, you could say, is talking to parents, okay? There's two reason for that, reasons for that. There are other times in Scripture, such as Hebrews 11.23, when this same Greek word, pater, which does, is usually translated father, is sometimes translated as parents, where it could not be fathers, because it actually is plural, so you can't have plural fathers. Anyway, don't worry about it. Sometimes this word is translated parents, but uh, the, the translators have chosen fathers here. But even if Paul actually meant father, fathers obey, uh, sorry, fathers uh, do not provoke your children, even if he's speaking to fathers directly, if he's giving a command to the father, the husband, then he's actually giving a command to the husband and the wife. Because the father is the one who's supposed to be setting the, the, the pace, setting the direction of how they raise their children. The father is supposed to be, you know, um, setting the pattern for the way they would do things. So if God commands the father uh, not to provoke their children lest they become discouraged, then that would become something he would be leading his wife to do as well. So we'll just go ahead and say, parents do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is fathers and mothers, parents. So what's your motive here in raising children? What's your motive? We see that again at the end of verse 21. It says there, lest they become discouraged. That may sound like a weird motive, but we got to think here, discouraged from what? Lest that you don't want to do these things for this motive, that they don't be discouraged. Discouraged from what? We saw there again in verse 20, what it is children are supposed to do, to please the Lord to please the Lord. And so our highest motive, our highest goal even, is to, rather than hinder our children from pleasing the Lord, discouraging them from that, our highest motive is to be encouraging them to please the Lord. You see that connection? You got verse 20, uh, children, uh, do, do this, obey your parents and everything uh, to please the Lord. And parents here, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that is, from pleasing the Lord, from doing the thing they are supposed to do. So parents, our, our highest motive in our parental relationship is to lead and guide our children to love, treasure, and obey Christ and not be discouraged. To please Him it would be another way to say it. To please the Lord. That's our, our highest motive. And here, it's giving the negative. Don't discourage them encourage them. Don't discourage them from pleasing the Lord. So that's our motive, but how do we do that? How do we keep from discouraging them? Well, this is our responsibility. It says there, fathers or parents, do not provoke your children. Do not provoke your children. So what does that even mean <laughs> to provoke our children? You know, is it to pick a fight? Come on, punk, what you got? You know, I, I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about, although some parents— Anyways, um, provoke here, I believe, is causing by our actions or lack of actions, anything we do that causes our child to be discouraged, to lose heart, and to push away from God. In context, I think that's what he means here by provoke. It's our actions or our, ac our lack of actions that cause this discouragement, cause our children to lose heart, to lose hope, and to push away from God. 
So you might wonder, well, how does that happen? How, how do we uh, provoke our children? How do I know if I'm doing it? Now, I wanted to, honestly, there, there are biblical examples of each of these uh, provoking ways to, ch- to children, but I, I really don't have time to, to give all of those. So I'm going to give you just two categories of parenting I see that provokes children, okay? This is what I would consider, you know, badly pro- uh, parenting the child because it's provoking them, discouraging them, causing them to lose heart. And I call these hard parenting and soft parenting, these aren't like technical terms or anything, but it's just what I'm calling them. Hard parenting and soft parenting. Hard parenting is heavy-fisted, and it, and it squeezes them so tight that it squeezes the life out of the child. This hard parenting is marked by overprotection, okay? This means you have a rule for everything for your child, and they have no way of ever earning your trust. They will always have these rules. These are the rules. They better follow them, and and they'll never even earn your trust by obeying them. What that does to children is it makes them say, what's the use? I'm not trustworthy. I can't earn their trust. So so what's the use anyways? And they they often rebel. They've been discouraged. Another way of hard parenting is to be demeaning to them, okay? Demeaning is to make little them, of them, to b- belittle them. And I think this often happens, sometimes it happens just by directly uh, making fun of them, you know, the, the words that we use, but sometimes it's just how, by how we treat them, how we interact to them. So think about it. Your kid's telling you uh, all about the Power Rangers or something. That seems very trivial to you. So what do we do? Eh, I'm, not, I'm not really going to listen. I'm going to fiddle with my phone while he talks and stuff. That's demeaning, your child grows up learning, I'm not really, you know, uh, worth all that much. I'm not worth my parents paying attention to me or, you know, engaging with me. My thoughts aren't important. My feelings aren't important. That's what, what they learn with this demeaning. Another way of hard parenting is, is being critical. You, you always find fault with what your child has done. You know, uh, you, you don't easily give praise. If you do give praise, it's backhanded. Hey, you scored a great goal. Maybe you'll score uh, more next time. <laughs> this is critical, hard parenting. This can be unaffectionate, unaffectionate parenting. Hey, the world's a hard place. I'm just going to train you up for it, so I'm going to treat you hard too. I'm not going to show you affection. The world, your boss ain't going to hug you when you get to work. So we don't show affection. This shows our kids, this shows them that they're not lovable, and even worse, maybe, that they're not likable, that they're not worth showing affection to. Another way of hard parenting is excessive punishment. Sometimes this can uh, bridge into abuse, whether that be physical or emotional or mental uh, abuse from the parent. And this usually happens, by the way, when we punish out of anger, or even the idea of punishment is giving them, paying them, you know, for what they deserve rather than discipline, which is training them up. We, we say, you have offended me in some way, you have, you've caused me discomfort in some way, and you are going to pay, little kid, and we punish them excessively. That breaks the spirit of children. You know what they learn to do? You might actually get an obedient child if you overpunish them, but they will only be learning the fear of man, not the fear of God. I'm not saying that you never, uh, you know, <laughs> make pain a part of your, your punishment, but I'm talking excessive, angry punishment rather than discipline, lovingly training up a child. 
That's hard parenting. Overprotection, demeaning, critical, com- uh, oh, I didn't even say that one, comparing, don't worry about it. Um, unaffectionate, excessive punishment. That's hard parenting. Now let's look at the other side, what I'm calling soft parenting, kind of the other side. And by the way, most of us as parents, we kind of blend these together. <laughs> we, we pick some of the bad off of each tree. Um, so soft parenting would be open-handed and disinterested. You're my kid, uh, but I, I'm not going to really do much here. And we do that by lack of standards. You know, we, we have these good intentions. Oh, I don't want to stifle my child, so I'm just not going to give them any standards or rules to follow. You know what that does to a kid? I think, number one, it makes them, if they're not going to obey their parent, they're certainly not going to obey their teachers or their bosses or the police. They're not going to obey them if they won't obey you. But secondly, it shows them, hey, I'm not really worth being guided and trained up. My parents aren't too worried about protecting me or anything like that, you know, so maybe I'm not worth it. That's lack of standards. I don't want to stifle my child, so I'm not going to give them rules. This is soft parenting, not helpful. Another thing we do in soft parenting is inconsistency, being inconsistent. You know, it is a good thing to show mercy to our children, okay? We, we want to show mercy because God shows mercy, and I get that. But sometimes showing mercy to our children is really a, a guise, a disguise for being lazy. I promised them that if they did this thing, then this was going to be their, their discipline. But, you know, it's really a, a lot easier if I just don't worry about it and say, hey, I told you not to do that. That's inconsistent. I told you I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do it. And we can do this even on other sides. We can promise good things and not follow through. That's inconsistent. Inconsistent. And kids, when they see this inconsistency, sometimes they punish me, sometimes they don't. They learn that the rules are bendable. You are able to be manipulated. Oh, mom, I love you. I'm so sorry I did that. You are able to be manipulated, and the rules are just there for how how well you can manipulate the system. That's what kids learn with this inconsistency. There's no real justice or judgment in the world. The next one, I would say, is neglect. This is soft parenting, just neglect. You don't really spend time with them. Now we say, oh, they need their space. You know, they they need to learn and grow up. And I realize different ages require different amounts of space, but some of us, we say they need space just because we want our space. I'm a very busy person. I've got a lot to do, so I'm going to give my parents all kinds of space. But you know how I'll make up for it? I will work so hard at my work that I'm obsessed with that I can buy them very good things, and I can take them on amazing trips. Let me just say this. Your parents don't want Santa Claus. Your parents want a father and a mother, okay? <laughs> they, they, they don't really—your gifts say, yeah, it's cool. It's nice to give them gifts. Your kids want parents, not Santa Claus, to drop in every now and then and give them a gift and then roll out. So we have that soft parenting, this lack of standards, inconsistency, neglect. We could go on for a long time on these, but both of these, hard parenting, squeezing the life out of them, controlling them, manipulating the child, and soft parenting, letting them do their own thing, they are lacking one key ingredient that makes them fail, that that discourages kids, that provokes them, and that key ingredient is the gospel. That's what I think. I think both of those ways of parenting miss the grace of the gospel. So rather than raising our kids the way our parents raised us, 
rather than looking to culture for how we should raise our children, what the latest fad is and how we should treat them, we should look to the Bible and look to the gospel for the principles of how to raise our children. We look to the gospel. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons it's, it's so important that we keep our relationship with God, our focus on God and the gospel, our highest priority, is because from that will flow true gospel-centered parenting, gospel-shaped parenting. So, I'm only going to give you a few examples, but I want you to understand this. Taking the gospel and parenting through that lens, okay? I'm just going give to you, give you some examples of what that looks like. We, we can't go through every aspect of the gospel and show how that shapes parenting. But you think about the gospel. In the gospel, God looks out for the best interests of his children. In the gospel, God looks out for the best interests of his children, Oftentimes, as we think of Sanctity of Life uh, Sunday and stuff, the reason that that right of life is disrespected is, well, that would take away from my fun, my success, what I want to do. I'll tell you, with, uh, I'm seven months in. It's hard work. It is. And it's real easy to put my interests above that of my child's. But we look at God. Look at what he sacrificed so that we could have a relationship with him. When he say, Jesus humbles himself, takes on flesh, then is killed and, and, and has the wrath of God poured out on him. That's a sacrifice that he made so that we could have the greatest good, which is, by the way, God himself. So parents, we need to take stock. This is, this is hard words right here. We need to take stock of how we might be selfish and self-serving with our children maybe in the way that we discipline them, maybe uh, in the ways we don't discipline them and train them up. And then, as, as we do that, we, we look out for the best of the interest of the child, and we say, okay, what are the best ways, not just the easiest ways, to train them up and point them towards Jesus? What are the best ways? So we see that God looks out for the best interest of his children, and we see that most poignantly in the gospel. Secondly, God gently leads us to repentance and reconciliation. I had uh, emphasized in my notes, I didn't do it. God gently leads us <laughs> to, uh, to repentance and reconciliation. God doesn't, God does knock me in line, but it is a gentle knocking. <laughs> I've never had God treat me so harshly that it discouraged me. I remember some of the times I have sinned uh, in, in just horrible ways, and I would be so, so angry at myself for it, and I wanted God to punish me. I really did. I wanted God to punish me, so I opened up his word. And I remember I, I actually went to Ephesians chapter 2, not, not the best place, because God told me how I was dead in my sin following Satan, but because of his love, I was made alive in Christ Jesus. Man, I hated my sin more than ever and loved God more than ever as he gently led me to repentance and reconciliation. I saw God's love and his grace, and that's what pulled me to him. So in the same way, parents, we don't just punish, again, make them pay. We don't just punish our kids and hope they figure it out. We, we gently guide them. Yes, we discipline them. Yes, we do. We discipline them, but we, we gently discipline them in loving ways, and we instruct them of, of why we're disciplining them and what we want for them and how this hurts us as well. 
you know, the, the old adage, this hurts me more than it hurts you, that should actually be true for Christians, that we hate punishing our kids, but we're willing to do it gently and lovingly for the child's good. The gospel, God gently leads us to repentance and reconciliation. I'm going to give you one more way with the gospel here. God is present, engaged, and compassionate in our lives. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God is present, engaged, and compassionate in our lives. And I realize it's so easy to uh, ignore children when what they're talking about or excited about is trivial. When their little, um, you know, breakup in middle school seems like the biggest deal to them. That seems like no big deal to us. Think about how God treats us. God, God wants us to be excited. He wants us to talk with him, to commune with him, to spend time with him. He wants us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. You think your problems are a big deal to God? <laughs> like, like if he, you know, um, sees them as like, oh no, I'm so sorry. Like I, no, like if, if we were in God's shoes, our problems would seem pretty trivial. And I realize that sometimes our kids' problems seem trivial, but we, like God, need to have compassion, sympathy, and empathy for our children. Rejoice when they rejoice. Weep when they weep. If we're to do that for fellow Christians, certainly we do that with our children. God gives us. He's, he's present with us. He's engaged with us, and he's compassionate towards us in our lives. Again, there are so many principles we could look at in the gospel and how we can treat our children, train them up, not just respond to when they act bad. We train them up. But there's one more point I, I want to give you, and th this one is uh, tough. You, you already know it, but I, I, I need to tell you. One of the greatest or worst ways you will train up your children is by your example. It can be your greatest asset or your worst enemy. Your example, your kids are, are watching you, whether you like it or not, no matter how terrifying that is. I make a noise, and Nora already tries to copy me. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, honestly, though, it, it is a little scary when I see her doing little things that mimic me, and I'm like, oh, no. They're, they're watching. Your kids are watching you. you. You see stuff that you don't like in your children. This isn't always true, but it's very likely they are a mirror of you, <laughs> that you're seeing your own failures and inadequacies. So what do we do, parents? I, I, I realize we're not perfect. We're not, and that's, that's part of even how we train by example. But I think what we need to do are some key things, parents. If we want this for our children, we need to be doing it. We need to show in our lives that God is our highest priority, our highest source of satisfaction, and our greatest joy. Think about your life. If you're a kid is watching you. Do they see that God is your highest priority, your highest satis satisfaction and greatest joy? I mean, that's actually our, our, what we talked about at the beginning. God is supposed to be your highest priority, not just putting an act on for your kids. He's supposed to be your greatest satisfaction and greatest source of joy. We need to make sure our kids are seeing that. This should be a challenge to us to grow in our spiritual lives for the sake of our children. Another part of that is we need to model for our kids confession and repentance. Model to your kids confession and repentance. 
your, your kids uh, being bad and you yell at them in anger in a way that you shouldn't, rather than being proud, we need to model confession. Hey, little, little Johnny, <laughs> I, I, Daddy shouldn't have talked to you that way. I, I'm sorry. Uh, do, do you forgive me? Will you forgive me for the way I talk to you? Now, I want you to know, little Johnny, that, that I actually had to apologize to God, too, for the way that I treated you, because it's, it's actually a sin against God for me to have done that. So I need to, to apologize. Uh, I had to apologize to God before I apologized to you, but God forgave me, and I'm, I'm glad you'll forgive me, too. We model confession and repentance for our children. If your kids only see you as, quote-unquote, perfect, which they don't, but if you're trying to put that act on for them, they will never understand what it is to come to God confess their sins as a weak sinner and receive his forgiveness as we repent. They, they won't understand that. So we need to model that for them. Another thing we do, kind of the other side of this coin, is model forgiveness to your kids. When your kids do something that bothers you, do you hold it over them for three days, you know? Do you, do you model forgiveness? When, when even, you know, your husband or your wife uh, does something against you, do, do, do you model the way uh, God forgives us in your life? How about these things? I'll just, I'll roll them out. Do you want your kids to be patient? Do you want your kids not to grumble? Do you want your kids to, to, to be generous rather than loving the things of this world? Do you want your kids to show honor and respect to other human beings? You better start with them. We have to model these things. We model patience, long-suffering. We model generosity, loving God and, and His work more than the things of this world. We don't grumble. We, we rejoice and we give thanksgiving in all circumstances. Your kids are going to emulate you. They're going to imitate you. This is one of the greatest or worst ways you'll train them up. Let me give you some uh, verses for hope here. Proverbs 22, 6. <clears throat> and we're going to talk more about these, so... Anyways, Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is, this is an amazing opportunity. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. you're going to hear some parents amen here. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, <laughs> but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Kids, folly is bound up in your heart. Your parents are trying to drive that from you. And parents, this is what you're doing. You're, you're driving that folly far from them. Proverbs 29, 17, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Discipline your son. He'll give you rest, and he'll give delight to your heart. Parents, we have an amazing opportunity and responsibility to raise up the next generation of those who will worship God who will repent to God, confess to God, and receive that forgiveness from God, and spend the rest of their lives worshiping God in, in continual repentance. And this is what we're doing. We have this amazing responsibility and honor. But I want to say something. I, I've told you you need to be not a hard parent or a soft parent, but a gospel-centered, gospel-shaped parent, and, you know, raise them up in the way they should go, and they, when they're old, they won't depart from it. Well, that's kind of hard, right? That's, a, that's quite a burden to put on you. So I want to give you a couple disclaimers here. First, no parent is perfect. 
No parent is perfect. Sure, aim for perfection, but unless your name is Jesus and you are the the second member of the Trinity, you are not a perfect human. You will make mistakes. And another thing I want to tell you is, although it is generally a correlation, okay, between our godliness, the the gospel-centered way that we raise our children, and, and the outcome, it's not always a direct correlation, we, we actually see this in Scripture several times, that there are these godly kings, these godly fathers, and then their child becomes a wicked king. And then sometimes we see this wicked king doing all these wicked things, and then their child becomes a godly king. It is not always a direct correlation, okay? And you say, well, what about that proverb there? Well, this is it. You can say this out loud with me if you want. It's a proverb, not a promise. It is a proverb. It is a general principle, not a promise. That means generally, most often, when parents raise up their children in a certain way, they will go a certain way. But the fact is, again, we have the biblical history of that. That's not the way it always goes. We know that ultimately, children are independent moral beings under God, and they will have to make their own decisions. We're never going to parent perfectly. By the way, God is the perfect parent, right? God the Father, and yet we rebel from Him. God was the perfect Father of Israel, yet Israel continually rebelled from Him. So again, even if your, your child has strayed or, or, you know, things like that, it does not necessarily mean it's your fault. It is a principle that, yes, we, we try our best to have our parenting shaped by God and by the gospel, but we cannot always control the outcome. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I'm going to start with parents. What does it mean for us? This is going to be, as we take communion, we can think about these things. Parents, you and I are all imperfect parents, okay? And even if we were perfect, we could not ultimately control our children. So what do we do? I think that first... We do need to confess our failures and our inadequacies to God. We, we confess those to God. God. God forgives us. He knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. We confess those things to him. And no matter how good of a parent we are, we're still imperfect. And so we, we beg God to make us the parents and, and representative authorities over our children that we should be if we still have that type of opportunity. We beg them. We're sorry, we beg God to do that for us. And then I think that we put our faces in our Bibles, we get on our knees, and we ask God to transform us. We pray for our children that, again, we cannot affect, or we can affect, but we cannot control the outcome of their life. We pray for them. God, make me the parent I'm supposed to be. Make my child the the man or woman of God that they are supposed to be. God, let them please you. God, let me direct them in a way that pleases you. That's what we do, parents. We get on our knees and we get in our Bibles. We ask God to change us. Kids, children, your hearts, whether you recognize it or not, your hearts are are pulling you away from God, from obeying Him, and your hearts are pulling you away from obeying your parents. 
Your, your heart, you're born with this, this wickedness. Your hearts are pulling you away. So what do you do to, to please God by obeying your parents? How do, you, how do you do that? I think first, you beg God to forgive you for your rebellion. Saved or unsaved, beg God to forgive you for your rebellion. That's part of salvation in the first place is that, we, God, I, I've messed up. I've been not obeying my parents. I've not been obeying you. I've been doing things you don't want me to do. Please forgive me for that. Then ask God to come into your life to give you the strength that you need to obey your parents and please him by doing it. God will give you the strength. God, God raises us up. He gives us this new life. Even if you're already saved, he, he continues to fill us with this spirit so that we can obey our parents and show them honor. And then kids, I would say the, the same thing as I said to parents. Put, put your face in your Bible as you continually pray to God and ask God to change you and shape you to be a more and more faithful child as you work on that first priority, your relationship with God and your relationship with your parents will change. And I, I mentioned this, but some of you may not have even trusted Christ for salvation yet, and I understand that. God has us all in different places, but today can be your opportunity. Even as I've spoken of how, how God and the gospel has treated us, you know, and how parents are supposed to treat their children, let those principles drive into your heart, that God gently draws you to repentance and reconciliation with him, that God is attentive, he's present and compassionate in your life, you can, you can trust in that God who, again, paid for your sins so that you could have forgiveness by faith in the finished work of Jesus. You can do that today. Now, this communion that we're about to have is, is reserved for believers. So if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, I ask that you let the, the plate pass. I want to say this, too. If you are, are a professing believer, you, you call yourself a Christian, but you refuse to repent of your rebellion toward your parents if you're a child, or you refuse to, to, to uh, parent your children the way that you should, the way God tells you to, then, then let the plate pass as well. That we, we shouldn't be taking the communion if we're going to be in active rebellion against God. But if we're willing to, to confess and repent, God, God is faithful and righteous to cleanse us uh, and, and to give us this forgiveness and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we're going to do communion now after I pray. And you can be thinking about these things with God. Father God, we all fall short in so many ways in our relationships uh, with you. God, we, we fall short. God, if we're married in our relationships with our spouse, we fall short. And God, as, as children or parents, God, we, we, we fall short in that relationship, God. But Lord, we've seen from your word what our motive should be. And God, we've seen from your word what our responsibilities should be. And God, we have seen from your word where that strength comes from. And it is from the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus for forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with you. And God, we know that he, he raised from the dead. And in the same way, you raise us from the dead when we trust in you. You give us the strength to do what you've called us to do. God, humble us. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to follow your ways. In your son's name, amen.